Hi, this is Jennifer Zeman, your host of The Food That Buy, a podcast about food and relationships. I'm a restaurant critic and food writer based in Atlanta, Georgia. Today's guest is Stephen Satterfield, chef owner of Miller Union in Atlanta. Hi, Stephen. Thanks for being here. Hey, thanks for having me. Could you please introduce yourself to listeners who may not know who Stephen Satterfield is? <laughs> uh, I'm Stephen Satterfield, the executive chef and co-owner of Miller Union, and I'm not the host of High on the Hog on Netflix. <laughs> 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 That's got to be a fun one, especially with social media, um, although Stephen's amazing. So as a chef, you know, I have to imagine, at least there was for me as a food person when you knew food was going to be something more than just a passion or even just a thing for you. When when was that? Oh, gosh, how much time do we have? That's um, what I'm saying. Like 30 minutes yeah. might not be enough, you know? <laughs> so, well, first of all, just a little bit about my background. I I grew up playing classical music when I was young. And at the time where you just make the decision what you're going to do for the rest of your life when you're in high school, <laughs> I decided to, um, I was weighing conservatory versus something else. And I ended up going with something else and I got accepted into Georgia Tech in the architecture program. So that was what I set off to do when I left, left uh, high school and moved to Atlanta which was in 1987. And I went through the program. <clears throat> I spent a year abroad studying in Paris. And I think that trip, that time there was what really kind of sealed the deal for me with food. I was living in an apartment in the city, in the city center and was kind of just melding into the culture and living like a Parisian, so to speak. And I would go to the markets and buy whatever looked good and take it home and figure out how to make it. Um, did you cook before finished, that? I did. I did. Um, when I was in, I was always in the kitchen, like, and I just enjoyed like helping my mom or my grandmother. Um, I would sometimes cook dinner for the family, like a casual dinner on a Friday night or something when I was in high school. Um, so I was just always comfortable in the kitchen and, but I never thought about it as a career. I just enjoyed it. And when I came back to Atlanta from that year abroad in Paris, I realized after getting into the field of architecture that it wasn't really where my heart was. And I decided to revisit music. And so, <clears throat> I grew up playing classical woodwinds, mostly clarinet and bass clarinet. And I picked up a, a guitar for the first time. And I was just so into it because it was like the summer after I graduated college and I kind of had, you know, my whole life in front of me and I was sort of taking a little time off to figure out life. And I, I did a lot of it with just sitting around playing guitar and learning how to write songs uh, on a guitar. I was, I was playing rhythm guitar and, you know, kind of humming over it and stuff. And there was a um, woman in my program who was 
also a very accomplished guitar player and she was kind of teaching me the ropes a little bit and we started noodling around together and creating some songs and then we found uh somebody that was a drummer and we formed like a little three-piece band we started playing and um like some spots right here and around in atlanta um and then we found another person who was a bass player, female bass player and vocalist. And so we formed this group called Sealy. This was back in probably 1993 when we sort of came into fruition as a four piece. And I had, you know, always played classical music and I was in the marching band. And so I was also in choral group and I was always musical and and just doing something like more modern and contemporary was really exciting instead of playing like the old oldies or the you know the really oldies <laughs> um and it was just like we I felt like we had something special and we recorded a demo cassette tape because that was the technology then and sent it to several labels. And one of the labels that we really admired um, called us and out of the blue. And it was this small indie label in London called Two Pure. They had um, watched the careers of Stereolab and PJ Harvey. Um, so we were really just over the moon that they reached out and they wanted to come to the States and see us play live. And so we arranged this um, situation to to play in New York City. And nobody knew who the hell we were, but we had some <laughs> friends up there. And basically, we just pulled a show together um, and got some friends to open for us. And we made it try to make it look like we were bigger than we really, really were. Um, but they came to New York. They came to our show. <clears throat> The next day we met them for lunch and they had a record contract that they put down in front of us and recording contract. And we were like super excited. So we just, you know, we had, we got somebody to look it over, but it was like, this is a pretty good deal. I mean, they don't have that much money, but they are internationally known. So we were sort of plucked from obscurity and with it, you know, once we released our, full-length album um we were in like a bunch of indie magazines and we were on ca a college radio so it was really exciting um we, ne we never really made it big but we were charting in the top 20 in college radio whenever we had an album come out and we we cut um two albums yeah i mean no it's great and we and we also toured and we cut two albums with two pure and then <clears throat> Um, we ended up going with a different label for our third album. Um, and after that third album and that tour, we ended up breaking up. So it was about um, a five to six year time frame where I was playing music as a professional recording artist with these amazing, talented people um, that we're all still friends and chat from time to time today. But it was during that time that I started working in restaurants. And so um, one of the places I worked first in Atlanta in food was the restaurant Eats on Pond. 
That's Which is where classic. I got my start. Yeah. So I started working there and, and I was working at Oxford Books prior to that. Oh my god. If you if anybody remembers that place. Um, I used the to one sell on Peach... my books there. Yeah. So Peachtree Battle Shopping Center. I worked at the Oxford Books store. Um, and I started working at Eats in 1993 and I was there off and on for four years. Um, whenever we'd go on tour, you know, I and Bob Hatcher is the owner and he was honestly like one of the best bosses I've ever had. Such a great guy. So <clears throat> dedicated to making that place work. It was like the little engine that could, and they're still around today. I mean, they, they're at this point, a 20 year old restaurant. Um, I don't go there much anymore. It's kind of hard to get now in and out of, but, <laughs> but, um, but love the guy, love the place, and that's where I got my start. And after some time at Eats, I, I started thinking a little bit more about food as like I wanted to make maybe some higher-end food and learn from some chefs. And I started paying attention to what was happening here in Atlanta, and I was really into Ann Quatrano's food, and she had just opened – uh, Floodway Cafe, I believe it was in 1999 that they opened, 1998 or 1999. And I'd eaten there a couple of times and just thought it was so cool. The location was edgy. The food was amazing. Um, it was suddenly very hard to get into. And I, I was really interested in the food because I felt like there was a focus on like seasonality and and the shoe is getting really good, interesting produce. And I wanted to know more about that. And I essentially just went to her and told her I wanted to learn and I wanted to work for her. And I didn't have very much experience. Like I was underqualified for the job that they were, they had an opening for, but I just wanted to, to get my foot in the door. And so it was at that time that I got hired um, with a lot of training and they were short staffed and it was a very busy restaurant. It was kind of stressful. Um, I got put on the wood burning grill. I really didn't know what I was doing, but I just was determined to learn. And um, it was an intense position because you had to build a fire every day and keep it going all through service. Um, you had to prep all, a lot of your own meat and set up, you know, do all the prep for your station, set it up. And I was pretty bad at time management at that time. And I, I was probably like stressing all of them out. <laughs> but on the line, um, it was Ann Quatrano, Len Sawicki, and myself. Wow. Um, Quite so the it was, talent. Yeah. And, um, you know, I wasn't there long. I was maybe there for... I want to say I started in like June or July and then I, I left um, at the first of the year in, in January. I went like, I think I've made it through the holidays, but we were going on tour. And so I, I had to leave. And when I got back from touring, I was aware of this place called Watershed in Decatur and everybody was talking about it. And it was like a wine shop and a flower shop and it had gifts and, but it was a restaurant too. And um, so I went there one night and met some friends and had a meal there. And it was 
outstanding. And I was really interested in it because at the time it was like, there were, there were two chefs. It was Scott and um, a woman named Angie. She was making Italian inspired cuisine and she had come from Floataway and he was doing Southern. And it was this really interesting mix of like traditional Southern that was kind of upscale and then like, some Italian stuff too. And I felt like they kind of worked really well together. We've seen that now hmm. where you have Southern chefs making Italian food and it, and it does work. Um, it sounds and I, so ingredient driven. Yes. And so I was inquiring about working there because I'd kind of, you know, I lost, I w- wouldn't be able to get back to float away because I wasn't there long and so, I left. So it's sort of like, you aren't really allowed to come back, which is fine. I understand that now. Um, and I met Scott and talked to him and the owners and they hired me. And it was right when they went from being more of like a gift shop to a full-blown restaurant. So the, the day I started was the day that they had added more equipment to the kitchen and they had taken out some of the displays and put more tables in. And I'm sure they realized hey, we're going to make a lot more money if people sit down and eat a meal and drink wine. Because um, that's what rest, that's how restaurants function. And uh, I, it was a great experience. And I, I loved it right at the beginning. Um, I met some fantastic people. And I really enjoyed learning from Scott. He is very, very smart and has a strong point of view. And really opinionated about food. But I... I I enjoyed like learning his perspective and understanding why he was so good at what he did was because he really paid attention to the details. And I think one of the hardest things to do is to make really simple food because there's nothing you can hide behind. It's, it's, it's like, if there's a flaw, it's very obvious, right? So all the ingredients were, you know, the best they could get. And he was also buying from local farmers. And that's where I got a chance to meet all the farmers was working with Scott. And I took over the ordering after a couple of years. I actually started as a grill cook, moved to saute. And then within a two-year time period, I was a sous chef. And within a four-year time period, I was running the kitchen. Would you say that it was at Watershed, at Float Away, or in Paris that you really like fell hard for vegetables. Because I feel like you and vegetables, like there, I just there are vegetable whispers in this world of which you are one. Um, like when did when did that really come in for you? Well, I mean, I think it was an evolution. It was a slow evolution, but it was definitely during Watershed where I started paying more attention to. Like I met these farmers, right? And I was, and I started seeing what was coming in through the seasons, and um, really just started paying attention to what was available. And I actually started keeping like a log of stuff, like every month that I saw <clears throat> to try to remember for planning for the following year. Um, and now email can do that for us because you can just search your email for the <laughs> for the farmer availability from last year. But um, yeah, and I and I also got really into cheese during that time too. And, uh, and I found all these Southern cheese makers that were kind of not really um, 
widely known at the time. And I, I joined the American Chief Society and went to the um, the grand tasting at the competition. It was in Louisville one summer, and I drove up there. And I personally introduced myself to all the cheese makers from the South and asked them what could I do to get their cheese at Watershed? Like, how can I get their, get access to it? Can they ship direct? What kind of payment do they want? And and I started a local cheese program uh, with the owners of Watershed, and we we kind of worked on it together. It was really fun. And you know, there was a couple of farmers that would come by that would come on an ounce and just have like a truck full of stuff, and I would go out and shop off the truck. And you know, they gave me a lot of um, freedom to kind of get creative with with things there and and help grow the, the program, the food program in the restaurant. I even trained, like sometimes I would come in on my days off and train with the owners in, on the backside in the office, or I would train at the host stand or behind the bar. Like it was one of those things where I realized I had a great opportunity and great access. And I didn't ever want to stop learning because I realized also that if you think you've stopped learning, and you go somewhere else, you kind of miss the boat. If you have all this access, I was learning how to run a restaurant mm. and, you know, I was piecing it together and I didn't even realize that's what I was doing. I was more just trying to help them because I was like, I have, I want to see everything from all sides and then give you my feedback. And we even worked, like we worked with a consulting company and I learned so much from them about like, you know, just, analyzing what works and what doesn't work and, and then, you know, taking a step back and being like, okay, we need to change this because it's not efficient. And so I, I really just had a great time challenging myself to learn the whole time I was there. And I worked there for nine years. It's a long stint in this yeah. industry. Yeah. It really <laughs> when is. it's not your own. Um, yeah. And well, that's the thing. And so I started thinking like, I've put a lot of time and energy into this place. And I love it. but I need to do something for myself and maybe it's time for me to go out on my own. I've learned a lot about running a restaurant. I've been here for a long time and I think I could possibly pull it off, but I need, I need a partner. And um, Neil at the time had started dating. Well, he married a good friend of mine, his wife, Carolyn. No, I didn't realize you guys were good friends. (laughs) Yeah, we, we knew each other um, before I knew Neil. And um, she used to come to our shows and we, we just had a lot of friends in common and we were part of a part of a concentric concentric circles of friends. Um, so she she was like, you guys should do something here because Neil was at Soto Soto and he, he same story. He started at the bottom. He was a busboy, then became a back waiter, and then a waiter, and then he became a manager, and then became the general manager of Soto Soto. So he was there for 10 years. And we were both kind of on the same trajectory of, let me learn everything I can. I'm going to work my ass off and make, you know, make something of myself in the system. And <clears throat> so we, she kind of match made us and said, why don't you all joined forces and we started um, working on a business plan and we started talking to a broker and looking at spaces and we looked at a lot of stuff. Um, 
And it was kind of intimidating, really, because just the amount of money that it takes to open a restaurant, it's a major risk financially. And we needed to find people that were willing to, willing to take a risk with us. Um, but ultimately, we you know scrounged up the money between some investors and some loans, and we we found this location and it was like, okay, well, nobody really comes over here. Like it's the dead end of 10th street on the West side. Like I've never even seen the street before, you know, and I was a little worried, but it was like the rent was such a great deal at the time. And we were in the economic downturn of, of 2008 and 2009 when we started working on this. So it was a really scary time financially because there was a lot of, you know, a lot of people lost money in the stock market and there was, you know, the housing market took a tumble and, and everything was just looking bad. Right. But we had already started the process. We had already signed the lease. Our friends were like, this is crazy. Don't do it right now. Put it off. We're like, well, it's, it's already in motion. Like we can't stop it. Um, but in, in hindsight, it was sort of the perfect time to open because there you know, there was not much else opening. So we had a pretty ripe opportunity and we had uh, basically one of the few restaurant openings that fall of 2009. And we were terrified. Like we didn't know if anybody was going to come, if anybody had any money left to spend. (laughs) Uh, And the location, you know, we were just concerned. It seemed a little off the beaten path. Well, you look at it now and it's, crazy because we're surrounded by so much stuff um at the time too we were the only tenants in our building so it was a it was a building that had been an old warehouse that had been re redone and remodeled and for retail and restaurant and we were the anchor tenant there was nobody else in that building for two years so so you if you went there at night it was like this one place with the lights on and the rest of the building was dark and it probably felt very edgy, I'm sure. <laughs> um, <laughs> you know, but uh, we've just kept at it. And, and, you know, we got a lot of attention right when we opened and we were a little terrified, we weren't quite ready for that. Like being called out by James Beard Foundation as a semifinalist for Best New Restaurant and in Esquire and the top, 10 and and multiple in the top 10 and it's like yeah so it's just like everything happened really fast and we got super busy and we weren't really quite ready for it but we just kind of like held on and you know let the wind blow in our hair and just kept pushing um (laughs) but but you know i i hate to think about like some of it we were sort of like learning in the public eye but I think we were, we always had a mission and a goal to <clears throat> serve, you know, farm produce products and turn them into good tasting food. And, and I think one of the things that maybe was refreshing about Miller Union is like, it's not, we're not trying to like do something that nobody's ever done before. And we've never said that we were, we're really just trying to serve honest food that's made from great ingredients and and just have a little fun with it but also like keep it somewhat rustic and and simple and that's how I like to eat and so it just felt right 
Um, and I think, you know, sometimes when you get a lot of attention, people come in with these expectations, like I'm going to have this experience that mm. is going to change my life. Well, we, we never offered that. We never said we're going to change your life. In fact, we want you to come back every week. <laughs> it's, <laughs> it's actually a lifestyle, not a life change. <laughs> so so um, you, no, you, you consider a, yourself like more like utilitarian, more useful, like a neighborhood spot. I mean, it was, it's been, it had been a long time since I had come to your restaurant because of, you know, I moved further away and COVID and kids. Yeah. And I came like a few weeks ago for a dear friend's birthday and it was bustling. You guys had expanded the patio on into the front part. Then you look yeah. around and it's just so funny to hear you talk about what it looked like at the time you were finding the space because now it's completely built out all around apartments like you know recreational facilities yeah. it's like a full-fledged city and you just had so much foresight I, it's really i think like you you're very humble to say that you don't do things differently than many other people like in terms of the preparation and your philosophy but i do believe that one of a couple of things that you have going for you are consistency. Like you've never strayed from that vision. Um, yeah, like true. it, it feels like the core of Miller union just to me as a diner feels very much the same that it did, but just like better and more mature. Um, but it's the service. And I do believe the service sets you apart. And I do believe that's a big part of the relationship between you and Neil. Um, yeah, and even would... Princeton, you know, Princeton yeah. um, Saunders, who started as a server and has been there for over 10 years now, I want to say. Yeah. Yeah. Um, he just, I mean, he just screams elegance, you know, when he oh, welcomes yeah. you. Can you talk about what service means to you as a restaurateur? And then also I have a follow up question. How has that changed since COVID has happened? Because you know, hospitality is a contact sport, right? Yeah, yeah. Well, I do think one thing we do well is hospitality and, you know, yes, okay. I think of Million in some ways as an everyday restaurant, but other people look at it as a special occasion restaurant. It's really both and it just depends on, on, on your level of comfort when it comes to dining. But the the service is something that we really spend a lot of time on um wine service hospitality menu descriptions like the servers have a lot of responsibility to understand how to convey all this stuff to the diner and make them feel comfortable and welcome <clears throat> you know wine can be very intimidating to a lot mm -hmm. of diners and i feel like we make it a little easier by having a very knowledgeable staff that can kind of guide you in a gentle way to the right selection. Um, Princeton, of course, very good at that. And, um, and, and convincing you that this is the one that you need to have, you know what I mean? And, and mm -hmm. nobody's ever disappointed. Like if, if we are able to communicate with a few adjectives about taste and, and, you know, body when it comes to wine, then it's like, we can, we can figure it out. It's like a key and you just mm -hmm. unlock that door. Um, but I also think, you know, there's a, we, we really pay attention to like coursing and taking 
you know, taking the time to like reset the table with silverware and you never have an empty water glass and all that kind of stuff. And, but it's all very like ingrained in the points of service and it. And if you're having a good time and just chatting with your friends or your colleagues or whoever you're with, you don't even really notice that stuff's going on, but then you realize there's nothing that you ever needed or wanted because it all, all came out. Yes. To the table. Yes. And, without, without, and you don't push it. You don't push food, but then as well, like I never feel under pressure. I feel very relaxed when I eat at Miller Union. Well, that's very wonderful relaxed. here. That's wonderful here because I think that's the goal is that we want the diners to be relaxed and comfortable try all the things, get the good wine or the cocktails, make sure you get dessert, you know, and there's, we, we provide a full service experience, but it is in a way that's not pretentious or stuffy in my opinion. Why do you and Neil work so well as business partners? I mean, it's been a long-term relationship now. How long, how many it years? Has, um, tw over 12 years, but this mm -hmm. summer we will have been working together for 13 years because we started I think in the, we started really partner, partnered the summer of 2009. We opened in late fall. But, um, you know, I think part of it is that we're really different. Like we are in some ways kind of opposites. And we also have different sectors that we govern. Um, mm -hmm. So we divide and conquer. Um, he definitely is more of the businessman. Um, he definitely is more focused on the front and he runs the wine program. He has a very good palate. He's very opinionated. Um, you know, I'm more creative. I'm more social and outward focused. I do. I'm the brand ambassador for the restaurant. So mm -hmm. I'm a little more big picture. Um, definitely when it comes to the, you know, the food, I have a, a, a strong point of view, um, but I also have a chef de cuisine, Michael Burkhart, who has been working with me for five years now, and he is um, doing such an excellent job sort of like taking over a lot of the menu um, so I can do a lot of these other things. And, and that's a, that's a wonderful um, thing to see that grow, see him blossom and, and cook in the style of Miller union. You know, he, came from a different background. And so, you know, watching him grow and, and grow into that style, which I think it has its own, it's not necessarily me so much. It's like, it has its own life. The, like Miller Union is like mm. a machine and it really, um, it's designed it's to be so cool to see something that you created as a creative person, not only working, but able to function without you touching it so much, because I'm sure it's exhausting too. It is know. exhausting. And I, well, and, I, and I do touch it a lot, but, but. Uh, <laughs> Maybe it, just, but just a does, fragment less you know, yes. for it, mental health. I feel, like I feel like it's designed. We, we have designed it to be passed down because the restaurant community is a transient one. And so mm. we have to have it the most, the best way to make it sustainable is to, have it reproducible. If someone leaves, then the next person that steps in has all the tools and the knowledge to do the job the same way. And that's an important, I think that sort of ritual of 
you know, running through your day the same way, having, having systems in place, like, you know, dividing up all the tasks and making sure that they're governed by different stations or whatever, you know, that's, that's a big part of running a restaurant and can't be overlooked. And so like, as we've evolved over the years, we've created more and more systems that make these sort of like fail safe situations where if, if someone has, steps away or leaves that someone else can fill in that place, whatever the job task may be, as long as they've had the training. And so, you know, it's, it's definitely like taking a long time to get there, but I think we're, we're really, when we're staffed properly, we're, we've got a great scenario like that because everybody's tasks are clearly defined and everybody understands what the expectation is. And that is make it great, you know, make it nice. Don't make it twice. <laughs> and, you're listening to The Food That Binds with Jennifer Zeman. This is my interview with Stephen Satterfield. I wanted to talk about your pastry department, obviously, because it's just such a such a bright spot. And it's, I mean, Miller Union is my favorite place to eat dessert. I'm not a dessert mm-hmm. person, but when I am a dessert person, I'm a fruit dessert person. And yeah. you just, your pastry chefs have a history of just really understanding dessert. But I mean... Even if you think about Pamela Moxley, who was, you know, a pastry chef for you for a long time, she was nominated for Beards. And now Claudia Martinez, who is your pastry chef today, is nominated this year for a James Beard. So obviously some sort of (laughs) generational talent and structure is working. Um, Can you talk about can you talk about Claudia a bit? Because we had her on the show last season. And um, I just think she's such a great talent right now. I mean, those fruit infused donuts she has on the menu, like I- I've been craving them. I don't normally crave a dessert, um, <laughs> but yeah. Well, I think one thing that is cool about how we work at Miller Union is we have, we have internal discussions between the bar pastry and the savory kitchen about what's coming in and out of season. And we cross utilize a lot of stuff. Mm. So for instance, um, you know, the, the donuts that you brought up, they are glazed with, a with basically the juices from macerated strawberries. Right? And the watering. A, oh my God. Yes. And then those <laughs> fresh, fresh, those macerated strawberries are on the dessert, but the strawberry tops get saved and the bar infuses uh, vermouth with strawberry tops for a cocktail. Meanwhile, we're doing strawberries with a beet salad, and then we have a strawberry glaze on our quail. And so it's like, you know, this is strawberry season. Hey, guys, strawberries are coming in. Everybody's got to use them. Of course, that's no horrible assignment because everybody loves strawberries and everybody loves (laughs) working with them. But the the goal is to cross-utilize as much produce as we can where it makes sense so in the fruit department that's where you have it's on the you know at the bar it's it's on pastry and it's in some of the savory stuff because i love i love fruit as a component in a dish with savory food so you know I, i think that's a really fun way to work because it's more collaborative um but claudia is a wonderful find i absolutely adore her as a person she is humble and she's 
she's thoughtful and really introspective when it comes to her work. Um, she is also just such a team player and really um, understands like how a restaurant works and that if one zone is going down, then the whole place isn't going to work. So if she sees that the silverware or the glasses, glass racks are getting backed up, she'll jump over there and stop, start polishing hmm. with the server assistants because she knows that she if that it. stuff gets cleared out of the way, then she's going to get her special plates and bowls back faster from the dish area. And so like she really, you know, or she, if she sees that somebody's busy on their station and she can just run over and help for five minutes, she'll do that. And it's, you know, she's the executive pastry chef. She doesn't have to do that, but she just does it because she feels like she wants to help and wants to be part of the team. And that's a wonderful thing to see. She spoke about how you wanted to help your team during COVID. And I mean, anyone that I run into that has brought you up in COVID talked about just how you treated your staff, um, like making sure they had food uh, and then all of the cooking that you did. Can, can you talk about the past two years? And, you know, I know we were all just trying to do like our best and like help, but like you really like why not? Weren't you like cooking for a bunch of healthcare workers somewhere at the dome? We were, I... yeah. Okay. We, yes. Um, yes. So we we had a very interesting proposition right at the beginning of lockdown. Um, some folks from Emory Healthcare reached out <clears throat> to a, a few restaurants, and they were getting some funding, some donations from. Uh, the Atlanta Hawks and State Farm Arena because, you know, of course, everybody is shut down. Enough, there was no games happening, and, they, and these, these people want to help, too, and they are big fans of restaurants, big donors of Emory, and so they commissioned a few restaurants to participate in this program where we would, we would pack up uh, basically a four-course meal for two people in a bag <clears throat> that could be with with reheating instructions and they would be handed out to the healthcare workers as they got off their ships and we were so proud to be able to do that work it was also financially sustainable for us um not the same as you know being open and having mm -hmm. diners in the restaurant and buying wine but we were able to get by and we were able to hold on to our staff and that was something that was really important to us because we didn't want to furlough everybody and, you know, and just walk away until we could figure out what was next. We, we actually worked through, we never stopped working. We worked through the entire pandemic. It was terrifying because we didn't know if we were going to make each other sick. And so we and were you're like, you know, compromised. No, as a cancer survivor, I have to like assume that that was even scarier for yeah, you. No? And I, I mean, I feel like that is, beyond me and I, I don't I don't have any immune issues that I'm aware of now but um, mm -hmm. had I been in chemo it would I wouldn't have been able to do it um, but yeah I mean I think I think um, it really gave us a purpose and it was a dark time but it gave us uh, a light to follow and we all really you know, we were stressed out, but we were enjoying the opportunity to be able to serve the community. 
Um, it wasn't easy. We were making, we were making, I think it was um, 200 meals a day, which was really 400 meals or 200, 200 meals for two. And they would have to be ready at a certain time for the, uh, you know, a, a truck would come pick them up and then take them straight to the hospital. And so we, we aren't caterers and we don't, you know, we hadn't really done this kind of style of service before. We turned our dining room into a production facility. So we were, um, we were essentially, you know, cooking in the back. And then when the food was ready to be back packed up, we would hand it over to the servers and they would box everything up you know, according to the specs from the kitchen. Then everything had to be bagged and we would put a thank you note in there and the rest, you know, whatever instructions for cooking, whatever the dietary, you know, dietary triggers might be. So it was a lot of coordination and it was, it was tough. We did it for about two months. And, and you gave program, all of your staff, you know, boxes of vegetables, wine at cost, yes, well, I heard. Yes. We did. Even. We were doing, we were selling wine at cost to the staff because everybody needed some wine. <laughs> Especially in a <laughs> and, pandemic. Uh, yes. <laughs> and we were, well, one of the things we did, we actually worked with Georgia Organics with this program where they, they provided um, boxes of fresh produce from farms. So it was, that was a separate grant that they were working on and they were helping feed restaurant workers and we were a recipient of that benevolence. So uh, we just had to coordinate with Georgia Organics and, and they would drop off, the farmers would drop off the food and we would assign a person um, from the team to bag everything up, separate it and bag it into all the bags for all the employees. And it was an interesting time too, because there were some things like our, some of our staff are not cooks and they had never Hmm. worked with kohlrabi or you know or or um what was it what was some of the things that we got that were a little unusual um keltus or um we had some uh gooseberries and you know so we they would come to me like what am i supposed to do with this and i would give them <laughs> little recipes to, or different tips on how they could eat it but um we were getting bread we were getting bread and eggs and you know I think it was springtime so we were getting like green garlic and strawberries and it was it was kind of like an amazing thing to you would get sometimes enough food for a whole week um if you went through it and and made it all it was it was quite a bit of food and the bread was from root baking which they just closed it's so sad but such a bummer um i know but anyway, they're, they're, they're going to stick with pizza jeans, though. I think. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I think so. Um, mm-hmm. But yeah, it was it was a wild time, and and I think we kept a lot of employees because of that. I mean, once we reopened, there were some people that cycled off and went to do other things. Some people went back to school or changed careers because it was so like PTSD, you know, to to reopen in, in the pandemic and just do outdoor seating at first, and it's kind of hard. Um, definitely a little shell shock because we were very protective about our space. We all made a pledge to isolate when we weren't at work. And so mm. we were only with our loved ones at home and, and then go to work. And we didn't, you know, nobody was going anywhere. Everything was closed. So it was like a very weird time. Um, and we were, went through it together, you know? And so 
I think we really, the staff that's still there at Miller Union that went through that, we're, we're like bonded for life over that stuff. Does it, like, I guess I asked you earlier, just want to circle back to the question. I mean, did COVID affect your ability to, I don't know what the right verb here is, but just like affect your like love of hospitality or your love of food? Did, did it affect anything? I mean, it seems like, I mean, just from observation, you're making rounds at the tables, you know, now and like talking to guests. I mean, George Banks, the real estate developer here, told me that diners are, you know, have amnesia. And I told him there's no way. And then a year later, he was right. Like, I'm sitting at a restaurant eating and I didn't think that was going to happen for a long time. Um, yeah. Yeah. What's it like well, for you now? Well, I, I will just circle back and say when we reopened, we actually reopened in the summer of 2020. And it was a really hard time. And I think we were all like struggling to hold it together, to have people come and dine where some people seemed really tone deaf and just didn't have an understanding of what we had gone through. And there were a lot of diners that were, you know, approaching the restaurant without a mask on. And it's like, you know, what is wrong with you? Like, <laughs> do you realize how much we've risked our lives to be here and serve and then you just blatantly walk in with with that disrespect it was very hard especially for the people in the front um you know we have a better understanding now of the risks and they can be mitigated and there's also it seems to be that you know we've we've had a nice little like grace period that mm -hmm. uh, seems like things are turning in a better direction and then the hopefully the COVID cases that are going to pass through in the future are going to be more minor but but at the time that wasn't what we knew and it wasn't the case at all and people were dying it was just a horrible thing to think about and so it was very hard to reopen and to hold ourselves together and be hospitable when we were faced with some diners that didn't really seem to have as much compassion but now i feel like the tables have turned and there's a lot more warmth and, and acceptance around the whole thing um i almost feel like the people that were brazen enough to go out to eat during that time were the ones that aren't really normally our customers <laughs> that's very you know interesting I mean? we, saw, we mm -hmm. saw a lot of people come through in the like bridge latter and half tunnel? of 20, the latter half of latter half of bridge and uh, latter half of 2020, <laughs> that um, we did not had never had never been to the restaurant before. That's wild. So it's interesting. Um, well, I mean, the OTP restaurants had their best year in like decades at that time, so I'm not surprised. Yeah, but um, yeah. not that not that everyone that lives OTP is like that, but I did find that interesting because it did feel like the further away you got from the city center of Atlanta, the the more lax the masking got, at least from my perspective yeah. as a yeah, mother on soccer true. fields and the only yeah. one with the crazy N95. But um, but just in terms of like that, like where where are you guys today as a restaurant? I mean, like you said, like I mean, you've you've had some challenges. Like I referenced, you had cancer, you know, which was treated successfully, and then COVID, you know. I mean, like like you mentioned PTSD. Like I mean, like now, like I mean, I feel like everyone's kind of like 
oh my God, you know, all this shit just happened. The dust is settling. Um, you know, what's, what's on the horizon? Like, how do you feel today? I feel really good today. And I think there was a time where I wasn't sure if we were going to make it through COVID because our sales were so low and, you know, we had, we were, we couldn't, like there were times where we did have to furlough some people and we did have to make some hard decisions, business decisions. Um, And we, you know, had to get down to more bare minimal staff and then we had to build it back up again. And so that, that was really hard. The human resources side of it, I think is the hardest for me because I get really attached Mm -hmm. to, um, to the people that work at Miller Union because they're, they're, helping us realize our dream every day but I feel like we're in a good place now and I also um just see like the happiness of the diners right now is very it's very contagious um and it gives us life because now we're inspired again there was a time where we were struggling to come up with dishes we were struggling to to change the menu just because we were we were uninspired we were tired if we were dragged out and now i thought well, our energy is back and that that's a great feeling i also just um two days ago turned in a new manuscript for a new cookbook oh, that's so, very exciting this is your second no yeah and i'm i'm a great uh weight has been lifted off my shoulders i've been in the thick of it. I, I wrote the whole thing through the pandemic and was shooting it piecemeal with uh, Andrew Thomas Lee at his studio. Oh, wow. Couldn't ask for over a better past, photographer. Over the past two years, we've been working on this. And so it's been, it's been hard because it's been hard for me to pull away from the restaurant at a, such a critical time. But I also wanted to realize this project and, I, and I'm publishing again with Harper wave, which is, um, a fantastic imprint. Congratulations. Karen, Karen Rinaldi was, um, thank you, was, you know, Anthony Bourdain's publisher and she is, she is also mine. She's amazing and a real tough cookie and knows what she's doing. So I, I'm, I feel like I'm in great hands. Um, and, and what is the concept of the book? Can you say anything about it? Like what's the focus um, of this cookbook? So um, it's another vegetable book. And the title, I can't say just yet because it's not uh, finalized. However, essentially, it's about going outside of my comfort zone Mm. and stepping outside of the South a little more and exploring other flavor profiles applied to vegetables. So there's a lot of influence from the global pantry which is the way that we've been cooking some at Miller Union over the past couple of years too, is that taking influence from this kind of globalization of food um, and, and finding flavors that match our style and that match the, the vegetables. And so it's been a really fun project, especially working with Andy and, you know, he can, he can bring out kind of some incredible, um, levity to food sometimes where just with light and shadow and and that interplay so that it's there's a little bit more of drama to it in a, in a way that i would say root to leaf is more moody and subdued and restrained and i think 
this next book is a little more edgy and punchy and fun. And it, I like that because I think it shows like kind of both sides of my personality. Um, so yeah, I just turned in the, the manuscript. It's going to go into editing and review and uh, it doesn't come out till next spring. So we, we've got a year before we'll see it. That's so great. And you mentioned comfort. What do you cook yourself when you want to feel comfort? Mm, that's a good question. I mean, honestly, like, one of my favorite things is to eat breakfast at home because that's usually when I have the opportunity to cook. If I, my day gets started late morning and kind of goes through, through the night. <laughs> um, so that's the, that's sort of my quiet time. And I, I love like just making some beautiful eggs and, and whatever's in the fridge to go with, you know, whether I do like, some huevos rancheras or some like poached eggs and asparagus and toast, whatever strikes my fancy, but having, having, I always have some good farm eggs around. And I think it's like one of the most um, perfect meals. And it always brings me comfort to eat like a, it's got to have a runny yolk unless, or I'll do it. I sometimes have an omelet for dinner. I love a dinner omelet. One of my favorite things. Very French. Um, you know, just some mushrooms and cheese and, and a glass of wine. That's a great, great meal. Can't argue with that. And your farm egg is still my favorite thing on your menu. I've tried so many things and it's still my favorite thing. <laughs> Although still on the menu. <laughs> your, your oysters Rockefeller that I had last time were pretty ridiculous. They might nice. be the best oysters Rockefeller I've ever had. Awesome. Well, Stephen, I don't want to take up any more of your time. Um, is there anything that you would like to promote any organizations and, and where can people follow you? Great. Um, well, I have been serving on the board of Slow Food Atlanta for almost a decade. So if you don't follow Slow Food Atlanta, please follow us on Instagram. And if you want to learn more, go to our website, slowfoodatlanta.org. And you can join and be a member and get all kinds of cool things to do, like learning experiences about food. So there's that. But yeah, if you want to follow me, I'm at Miller Union Chef on Instagram. And the restaurant is at Miller Union ATL. Well, thank you again. Thank you. It was a pleasure to speak to you, and I can't wait to come back. I enjoyed it. Thanks so much. Right. Thanks, Stephen. Bye-bye. Bye. That's this week's episode. Thank you for listening, and thank you to Stephen for taking the time to speak with me. We'll be back next week on Sunday with Nicole Taylor, a producer based in Athens and Brooklyn. Again, this has been Jennifer Zeman with The Food That Binds. Thanks for listening and see you next week.